And uh, we're going to move the speakers along smartly because so that everyone can get off to Rudy at the end. Um, and uh, introductions will be short and sweet. Um, we're going to move, as, as many of us in the associated with the Federalist Society have, uh, from left to right, from your perspective, uh, starting with, with Jim Miller, uh, who was director of OMB and also uh, formerly chairman of the FTC, uh, and is now a senior advisor at the law firm of Blackwell Sanders, and is also chairman of the board of the governors of the U.S. Postal Service. A daunting task. Mm -hmm. Proceed. Thank you, Judge. Um, Eight years ago, I uh, wrote a book that was published by the Hoover Institution in which I extol the virtues of competition, competitive markets, and uh, condemned the vices of monopoly. And I applied the basic economist analytical tools to the market for, uh, for political representation or elected representatives. And I found that market was extraordinarily monopolistic and that a lot of measures such as campaign finance reform made matters worse, not better. And in describing how competition not only lowers prices, but, uh, but enhances the development of new products and technological change, uh, I looked down at the, lap, at the notebook computer that I was write, uh, using to write the book. And here is uh, what I want to read you quickly what I wrote. I wrote... I'd like a notebook computer that weighs, by the way, this is page 21. You could obtain it on Amazon. <laughs> I'd like a notebook computer that weighs no more than three pounds, is no more than one inch thick, runs at 300 megahertz, and has a full-size keyboard, an active matrix screen, a built-in floppy and CD-ROM, a five-gigabyte hard drive, that was a long time ago. <laughs> At least 96 megabytes of RAM and a built-in battery that lasts for at least five hours between charges, all for a price of less than $1,000. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here it is. I lied about the $1,000. It's a little bit more expensive than $1,000. But there are others out there that come very, very close, if not within the bounds of what I said. It also has a CD, not a floppy, but the floppy is obsolete now anyway. But it has a lot of other features that I didn't even think about at the time. Now, how did this all come about? Well, the way it all came about is that the market for computer hardware is extraordinarily, vigorously competitive. Pick up any magazine on computers and look for the index of advertisers, and you will see company after company after company after company advertising. And they all have some measure, whether it's a little uh, an advance like uh, this thing reads a fingerprint. You don't have to put a password in, things of this nature. Uh, but it, you have this development of, 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 of new products and prices fall, and it's there because you have competitive markets. Competitive marketplace enables this to happen. Um, and all the resources necessary to put this together are freely available, are marketed, uh, property rights on them. It's freely exchanged in the marketplace. The marketplace for telecommunications is different. 
because an essential input into the production of any product or any service is a scarce resource we know is the frequency. And it's not freely available if there are no property, private property rights on the frequency and it's not tradable. I mean, there are some exceptions. I know you've done some trading, um, uh, Commissioner. But by and large, the use of the spectrum is determined, is allocated by fiat by a government agency known as the Federal Communications Commission. In that regard, it's very important for regulators, the FCC particularly, to understand that by its choice of means of regulating and the allocation of its authorities and its, and its property, um, to uh, those in the private sector, it really has an enormous effect on competition. Uh, the FCC does best, in my judgment, when it enables, it facilitates competitive markets and guards against having monopolistic markets. Look at what happened in the paired wired telephone service when you had the, the, the AT&T um, uh, agreement that uh, Bill Baxter uh, orchestrated. You had just an explosion not only in devices but in services offered, service offerings. Look at the cell phone service. The FTC did a terrific job in establishing opportunities for companies to compete. And you have just incredible variety of services offered uh, by competing tele uh, cell phone companies. Look at the PDAs. I mean, we probably all got a Blackberry squirreled away around here or a Trio or something like that. That, I think, is where the FCC does the best job is when it maintains competitive markets. The bottom line that I want to get across is that competition matters a lot. And uh, I remember when I was chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, the Miller team got excoriated by a lot of people because that we, we found some, some uh, business practices such as vertical arrangements we said were not uh, restrictive of competition. In fact, uh, they were pro-competitive. And we found some mergers that were not only benign, we even found some that were pro-competitive. But I think it's important that we understand that, uh, that the place that you're most likely to find um, anti-competitive behavior, monopolistic behavior, is where companies and industries are highly regulated, where the market is free to operate you don't have nearly as many problems as when you have a regulator. And so it, the, the, the real challenge, if I were a commissioner of the FCC, I would be focusing on how do, I, how do I keep from impeding competition and how do I keep from memorializing monopoly? Thanks. <laughs> I think I was just about to receive the Absolutely. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> the next speaker is Robert McDowell, Commissioner of the uh, FCC since June 1, 2006, uh, and comes from a distinguished career in private uh, FCC practice. Thank you, Your Honor. And, uh, well, we have a lot going on at the FCC, and I'll try to keep my comments uh, short because some of you may have uh, a number of questions regarding what's going on at the FCC. Uh, I certainly do. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, uh, over the years, the FCC has done a terrific job of keeping you very busy, uh, Your Honor. And uh, I'm sure sometimes uh, you end up with your forehead on your keyboard uh, wondering what the heck uh, the FCC was trying to accomplish. But in any case, what, it, what the FCC does really, you know, touches the lives of every American and people across the globe. 
Uh, directly, we affect about one-sixth of the U.S. economy, and indirectly, about 40 percent. So what we do is very, very important. And I'm at the FCC quite simply to promote freedom and the sovereignty of the individual. Uh, we do that through the promotion of uh, free markets and the dissemination of free ideas. And I believe that the government simply cannot and should not try to replicate the billions of decisions that are made in the private sector uh, each day. Um, because free and competitive and open markets work. Regulation should be reserved only for market failure. And I know we have rebuttal time reserved. I'm not sure we're going to be rebutting each other very much here. Uh, I think we might be all coming from the same uh, perspective. But one of my uh, top priorities as a commissioner in order to promote competition has been to promote the construction of new delivery platforms. Uh, robust competition among and uh, sometimes within platforms is good for consumers and the economy by, of course, producing more technical innovation and lower prices and more choices for uh, consumers. Um, among some of the uh, initiatives we've worked on recently to help uh, spur even more competition uh, has been the video franchise relief uh, to clear out unnecessary regulatory underbrush so localities cannot unreasonably delay uh, the franchising of video providers. Uh, we made sure, I made sure, uh, that not only did that uh, apply to new entrants into the video market, but uh, to incumbents as well, so we have a level playing field. We had our advanced wireless services auction uh, last year. It was phenomenally successful. It raised $14 billion for the U.S. Treasury, and the, the policy um, there was a market-based approach. It promoted the use of unencumbered spectrum, um, and uh, that gave entrepreneurs the flexibility uh, to apply their ingenuity in ways that we won't be able aren't able to imagine now and won't be able to imagine even uh, as they're building out because uh, it will continue to grow and flex. And I think it's important to, to follow up on a point that Jim made a minute ago that, yes, Spectrum is a finite resource, but overall in uh, this country uh, and worldwide, but primarily driven by the United States, spectral efficiency doubles every two and a half years. So that's the overall throughput of, of the use of the spectrum. And that's, uh, that's terrific. Since Marconi's first radio transmission in the 1890s, uh, we are one trillion times more efficient mm -hmm. in our use of the spectrum, uh, and that uh, I think is very promising. Uh, of course, we have the 700 megahertz auction uh, coming up in January. I supported some of that order, and I dissented on other parts, the, the, the parts regarding the encumbrances, the open access mandate, um, and the reserve bid uh, sections. But nonetheless, it's terrific spectrum, uh, the most powerful we have, really, and uh, I'm uh, very, very excited by the prospects there. Over, over the horizon, we have uh, possible entrepreneurial uses of uh, white spaces, um, and, and on that, I think we need to maximize the use of those spaces. I want to make sure that we do that without interference for, for current uh, users, uh, but I'm confident that uh, technology will solve that problem, and ventures will continue to invent, and uh, they will find a way around the interference uh, problem. Technology always, always solves problems like that. Uh, other opportunities could, could involve the reduced orbital spacing of satellites. Uh, right now, uh, we uh, are considering uh, something in, in, the, in that regard. Uh, each satellite currently, you know, a satellite's roughly the size of an automobile, uh, and there's breathing room of about 4,000 miles in between each of those automobile-like uh, satellites. And while I'm no rocket scientist, I'm uh, confident that we can probably uh, squeeze a few more up there without uh, uh, any adverse uh, consequences coming about. But overall, our deregulatory policies of the past uh, few months uh, and a couple of years uh, have really served America well. 
Our broadband uh, penetration rates have been surging from a 32% adoption rate per year or growth per year to 52% to our most recent report uh, showing a 61% penetration rate. Uh, we are the largest the bro uh, broadband market in the world with uh, over 82.5 million broadband users. Uh, nearly 60 million of those are in the fast lane of the 1.5 or 3.0 or higher uh, megabits per second. And uh, that fast lane is getting faster. Our fiber to the home market is growing at 99% per year as a result of deregulation. Cable is available to 94% of all U.S. households. And America is home to about one-third of the world's Wi-Fi hotspots. The closing point on that, and I sense from the shifting of the chair, my time perfect. is... is, is uh, you very well. Thank you, Yara. Hopefully I can bottle that up and say that in my opinion sometime. But anyway, wireless broadband growth uh, showed the largest percentage increase from a mere uh, roughly 82,000 uh, units at the end of 2005 to over 4.1 million wireless broadband users by the year end of last year. That's an astonishing 5,000% increase, actually slightly over 5,000% uh, in about a year. So anyway, while we can always do better and we should always strive and never be satisfied, uh, I think our deregulatory policies in, th in those areas uh, have served America well. And in the Q&A session, I'll be happy to talk about the more regulatory stuff that might be facing the FCC here. Thank you. Uh, the next speaker is Roy Hoffinger, uh, Vice President, Legal Counsel for Qualcomm, and its uh, Chief uh, In-House Antitrust Counsel. Uh, and he uh, comes from a career with law firms and also with AT&T and Quest. Thank you, Your Honor. Before I begin my remarks, uh, I, I should preface them by stating that uh, uh, they reflect my personal views and not necessarily those of my employer. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, uh, something I think is a, a very timely, uh, and that is the uh, efforts of uh, um, certain elements of, of, of industry to use competition law and agencies and courts worldwide to uh, um, uh, foster uh, regulation of uh, the licensing of intellectual property. And I think that's a particularly appropriate topic for this panel, which is, I understand it, entitled The Regulatory State and American Technology. Uh, the outcomes of these efforts could have an enormous impact on incentives to innovate. And the potential for harm to the United States um, is, cannot be understated, given the role that research and development, for example, as opposed to manufacturing, plays in our economy. Uh, I'm going to focus today on two, two particular issues, or really rather sets of issues. One is the effort to get uh, competition law agencies to play the role of price regulator or regulator of licensing terms. Uh, one area where we see this is with regard to intellectual property that's incorporated in standards. Uh, it's been the case for uh, the past, I'd say, 10 to 20 years that uh, prior to incorporating a particular technology that's subject to patents uh, into a standard under consideration, standard organizations will ask the patent owners of essential patents, which basically means you have to practice the patent in order to comply with the standard, to agree to license their patented technology on terms that are fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. Uh, in industry rubric, this is often referred to as FRAND or RAND. Now, the original underlying intent of these FRAND or RAND requirements 
was to ensure the availability of the patented technology. In other words, the concern was that uh, if this was going to be a standard and everybody was going to be building to the standard, you didn't want to create a monopoly over downstream products compliant with the standard by uh, virtue of the fact that under patent law, uh, the patent uh, holder has the exclusive right to practice that patent. So again, they wanted this technology to be available uh, to downstream producers so that there would be competition. Uh, and Fran and Rand worked pretty well. but. What's happened of late is that we're seeing these brand policies and commitments distorted beyond their original intent. In particular, the proponents of this perspective are attempting to use uh, brand and rank commitments and alleged breach of those commitments to institute nothing less than rather a pervasive uh, public utility type scheme of uh, uh, rate and other forms of regulation. I was at a panel in the spring with uh, one of the proponents of this view, a very well-respected uh, law professor and practitioner uh, who began his discussion of Fran by saying that it embodies at least four, 24 separate principles of rate regulation. Uh, now, I do have this background in telecom regulation, and uh, uh, for those of you who are familiar with it as well, you might think that I would have tend to bristle a bit, and I did. Um, uh, fair and reasonable. Uh, that raises the question again that many of us who practice in this field uh, uh, confronted, which is how do courts and agencies regulate price? Uh, it is an incredibly difficult topic with the outcome almost, almost always arbitrary and in my experience more often than not uh, suboptimal from the point of, of efficiency. Uh, and that's even true when you have supposedly expert agencies doing the regulation. Here, the idea is to have competition agencies do the regulation. Uh, it is not too difficult for me to conceive of someone ultimately trying to suggest, for example, that FRAND requires TELRIC pricing. Uh, with all due respect to Commissioner McDowell, who I don't think was around or was not responsible for TELRIC, uh, I don't think any serious person would recommend TELRIC pricing uh, as the law for uh, uh, the licensing of extremely valuable, uh, important technology that is central to economic growth. Uh, in fact, I would submit to you that the idea of subjecting uh, important innovation to public utility type regulation stands on its head the original intent not only underlying FRAN but patent protection to begin with. The idea is to give this patent owner control over its prime property, uh, not subject to being second-guessed, so that the patent owner will have the maximum possible incentive to innovate. And to give you an example, of an ex uh, the most extreme example of how this would work, there's a proposal that's floating around called aggregate royalty terms and proportionality. And the idea is that somewhere, someone somewhere, determines what the maximum aggregate royalty payable should be for intellectual property, considered all intellectual property and all intellectual property owners, that you determine some arbitrary cap. And then you divide that cap in proportion to the number of patents that are declared as essential to the standard organization. 
There is no support whatsoever in economics, precedent, or industry practice for this concept, yet it's being taken very seriously in certain quarters. And the non-discrimination principle, again, another, you know, thing that's got to be deeply concerned. What does that mean in this contest? One size fits all. A number of licensors uh, have licensing policies which are extraordinarily flexible for the purpose of accommodating, accommodating their very different needs of their licensees. Are these licensees able to afford big upfront payments? If not, you'll recover your rates and royalties. If so, perhaps the opposite. Taking away that flexibility would be deeply harmful both to patent owners and the practicers of their patents. The other topic I wanted to mention is a little bit different, is I think what we're seeing is what I perceive to be an argument that, in essence, standard-setting organizations should be turned into buyer cartels. The purported problem that this was addressed is something called holdup. But preliminarily, the idea is FRAN regulations or FRAN requirements are inadequate. They haven't produced uh, uh, sufficient control over purported market power by patent owners. And there's something called holdup, which is after the standard is adopted, the, uh, uh, the patent holder will uh, uh, try to extract some sort of super competitive price for its patents. There is no empirical evidence of this. Uh, and the purported solution is the one of the leading proponents of this view is joint negotiations ex ante before the standard is adopted, which he calls coordinated buyer power, uh, quite candidly. Um, that is simply not necessary. Terms can be made available through bilateral ex ante negotiations or certain policies requiring advanced disclosure of royalty terms. There is no need for uh, using SDOs to create uh, and exert monopsony power. Thank you. Thank you. And our, our next speaker is Ambassador Gross, uh, who is, full title is United States Coordinator for International Communications and Information Policy, and he comes to that uh, from a distinguished career in communications, starting with Sutherland, Asheville, and Brennan. Thank you very much, Your Honor, and it's a great ple a pleasure to be here with everyone. Uh, I'm going to pick up a couple of threads, I think, that Jim and Rob really laid out. Uh, and I think my role here is to uh, perhaps state the obvious, uh, which is that the role of competition, uh, free market enterprise and the like, uh, the benefits that come from that are, of course, universal when allowed to flourish. In the area of telecommunications, which is about ICT worldwide is over a $3 trillion a year business now, growing at double-digit rates. That was not always the case. And in fact, of course, the United States was, has been the leader in terms of deregulation in this field. The area of telecommunications, of course, has been primarily characterized by, monop uh, by not only monopolies, but usually state-owned monopolies, uh, and have rarely been the area of innovation and growth until recently. The world looks very closely at that which the FCC has done, what our Congress has done in the area of deregulation and has followed suit in ways that are really quite extraordinary. Just to give you a few ideas about uh, what is happening out there, in uh, 2000, December of uh, 2000, there were about 700 million mobile phones in the whole world. 
which was an extraordinarily large number compared to what people thought would be the case. Following the lead of the United States in deregulating the wireless industry, which is primarily now deregulated around the world, there are now over 3 billion cell phones in the world growing extraordinarily rapidly, four times just since the, year, the end of the year 2000, largely because the world has looked at the success of the United States and other countries that have deregulated that industry and have found extraordinary benefits. India is one place where you see those benefits, where in the past, India, and I know from my times in, in, in private industry and private practice, how uh, regulatory the Indian government had been in the area of wireless. There had been virtually very little wireless in that country. Now, as a result of deregulation, opening up that market, including to foreign investment now, that market grows at approximately 8 million phones a month. Since uh, the population of Finland is only about a little over 5 million, they're growing at about one and a half Finlands a month, which uh, is good news, I think, for Nokia, but uh, <laughs> fortunately also good news for American companies as well. China, of course, is growing very rapidly. I don't have to mention that other than the fact that they've got over 500 million cell phone subscribers in that country already. Uh, I wouldn't, one country which people may not focus on, but it goes very much to the point, I think, of the panel of deregulation and competition, is Pakistan. In 2000, um, there were uh, well less than one million cell phones in that country, a very large country, but less than a million, because they had not deregulated. Uh, we, the United States government, we worked very closely with the Pakistani government, uh, provided capacity building support and the like. They deregulated very dramatically. There are now over 73 million cell phones. It's gone up approximately 100 times since 2000. Uh, this is going on all around the world. In Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein, of course, no surprise, didn't allow cell phones in his country. Today, there are 10.5 million cell phones in Iraq. They just auctioned off, Rob would be happy about the auctioning, three licenses there. Each one went for $1.25 billion plus 18% of the revenues for a 15-year license. All of those licenses were purchased by uh, investors from the region. So these are Arab investors investing in Iraq today on the bet of a good and prosperous future for that country. Afghanistan? Same thing. Under the Taliban, it was even worse. Not only were there no cell phones, you had to leave the country to make an international call. Today, there are uh, well over three million cell phones in that country, of which there are four licensees. Extraordinary competition. When you are in Kabul, you see women in burqas with cell phones talking as they're on the street. Uh, the economic impact has been extraordinary. But it's not just about the economics. It's about social development, the ability of people to be able to provide uh, services, government services, personal services and like, to their people, particularly through the Internet. The Internet has seen the same sort of growth. We've seen 2,000. There are about 400 million Internet subscribers in the world. Today, there are about 1.3 billion subscribers. So just in the past few years, we've seen more than a, a trebling of the number of Internet subscribers in the world. Through that, we not only see economic growth, social development, as I said before, but extraordinary political change as the ability to have the free flow of information has continued to advance. 
In the early 1970s, according to Freedom House, there were about 40 countries in the world that could call themselves a democracy. And without trying to quibble about how free each democracy is, today Freedom House says there are about 120 countries in the world that are democratic. Lots of reasons for that, of course, but clearly one of them is the ability to have access to information, more people having lower cost access to information, whether it's through cell phones, being able for people to be able to talk to each other, communities to stay connected, families to stay connected, or through the Internet, where people have access to information to know about the lives outside of their community, to be able to better themselves, the changes have been dramatic. And the changes have come really for two reasons. Changes in technology, most of which are American-based, and the second is competition and free markets. Where we see free markets and competition, we see growth, we see lower prices, we see greater availability. The changes, as I said, have affected the world dramatically, not only economically, not only socially, but politically as well. Thank you. Thank you. The panelists have been extraordinarily good at keeping within the uh, time limits, and uh, I thank, thank we, you all. We fear you, Judge. But our arrangement was that if panelists wanted to respond at all to each other, we'd have a minute for that now. It was was couched as a rebuttal, and I'm not sure uh, (laughs) I want to rebut anything. Well, I used respond to to make it a little bit broader than that. Uh, But people willing to move on to questions? Could I just make? Could I just uh, follow up on something the ambassador was saying? Uh, so many of these devices and services that start out to be rather elitist, uh, because of competition, quickly become ubiquitous. Uh, cell phone is an example. Uh, these notebook computers. I understand that uh, this past year, notebook computer sell or laptop sales for the first time exceeded home, you know, desk-type installations. Um, and, uh, you know, when the cell phones first came out, I got one of those bricks, you remember? Um, and I remember standing on a corner in, uh, in New York City, and somebody walked by and said, he's talking to Henry Kissinger. <laughs> I mean, it was so exceptional, you know. I mean, but now cell phones are ubiquitous. So competition plays an extraordinary Important role in the society in in converting something that's really an elitist product or service into something that's almost uh, people consider almost an essential service or product. So we had a, a question. There is a microphone back there. It's, John and Lott. it's uh, easier. It's not on. No, I didn't say anything. He was identifying me. I appreciate that. Anyway. Uh, uh, Mr. McDowell, I had a question about the auctions. Why don't you auction off the right to do the auctions? In the sense that what happens is there's, you hire experts to go and try to tell you exactly how you're going to set up the auctions that are there. It's not really clear to me that they have enough of an incentive to go and figure out the exact right thing that should be done there. I mean, you may want to put certain types of restrictions, generally like what the market concentration would end up being or something like that. But it's my guess is people would be a lot more imaginative, have a lot more at stake themselves personally in trying to figure out what might be the best way of doing the auction rather than the FCC trying to figure out whether it's English or Dutch or whatever type of mechanism that you're going to be having there to auction it off. So why don't, why don't you auction off the right to figure out the best way to do the auction? 
That's an excellent uh, suggestion. Uh, we are uh, limited by what Congress uh, told us we can do. Uh, so our ability to auction is, is limited specifically by statute. So uh, I would uh, encourage you to talk to your representatives uh, in Congress about that, that very idea. Um, I don't know. I'd have to ask the judge if there's a, a delegation issue there of delegating uh, what could be deemed a public policy function is to there, a private. Is there a delegation entity. doctrine at the moment? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I will leave it to others to, to uh, discern that. But uh, great idea. Yes. I actually two questions. The first one's short. Mr. Miller, what's on page 24 of that book? Because I'd like to invest in it before it gets <laughs> 21. <laughs> well, well, I'm looking next at page. the next page, so apparently you've already gone. Uh, the next question is really for the panel as a whole. Um, the last week, two weeks, we've seen cable companies take a massive hit from Wall Street. And analysts, by and large, have put part of that on the fact that uh, through a combination of factors, whether it's outright hostility of Chairman Martin to cable companies or treating AT&T, Verizon as new startups, essentially, getting into a new market, it's kind of hard to, for some of us to fathom that when they have AT&T alone has $130 billion a year in annual revenue that gets this new startup treatment. And I'm wondering if there's going to come a time when we're sitting here talking about deregulation that the FCC is actually looking at uh, applying the same regulations to all providers of like services, because right now it's being split up. Is, is this IPTV or is it traditional cable services? Well, at the end of the day, what the consumer is doing is making a selection based on price and delivery of that product and these artificial uh, markers seem to be based in the 1970s uh, uh, era of, of, of delivery. And it would seem, as if we can use the uh, uh, laptop as an example, uh, whether it's internet connectivity, whether it's video services in the home, or it's telephone or mobile, that, that the FCC will deregulate and treat these just as a consumer does, as like services being uh, delivered like and regulated the same way. One of which, most importantly, is, of course, cable companies are restricted from having more than 30% of the cable TV market, which effectively prevents any cable companies, or at least Comcast, which is the biggest one, from acquiring anyone else or Time Warner acquiring any one of the others. Yet if you take the top five cable companies and combine them, they're still not as big as AT&T. And in an ever-growing competitive environment, if you truly want to foster that competition, we'll get rid of some of these 70s regulations, including that prohibition on combination. I'm wondering if there's any thought that we'll see that in the coming few years. Uh, absolutely. First of all, uh, we could talk all day about that question, uh, so I'll try to limit my response. Um, we have already done that in some cases, but I agree there's a long, long ways to go. Uh, if you look at uh, what the commission has done in the wake of the Supreme Court's uh, Brand X decision, the Supreme Court in that case, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, basically said that uh, the FCC was correct in ruling that uh, cable uh, modem services are, uh, broad, are uh, an information service. So ca cable broadband, cable modem is an information service appropriately handled under Title I of the Act. Uh, since then, uh, the uh, commission said, well, like services, DSL, for instance, is also Title I. That was appealed to the Third Circuit. And the Third Circuit last month said, no, the FCC got it right. Uh, that should be uh, Title I right. It appropriately uh, put it in that uh, silo, so to speak. Uh, so we've also uh, looked at wireless broadband, uh, broadband over power lines, and been putting those all into the, the Title I uh, bucket. 
so that's, that's one instance. With video franchising reform, just to give another example, uh, I was concerned that our order of last December would just uh, uh, put the thumb on the scale in the favor of the new entrants and not uh, for the incumbents. And uh, we can also maybe have a discussion as to the conservatives' dilemma over the uh, power of, uh, and rights of localities uh, to uh, have their way versus uh, something that's essentially an interstate uh, type of service uh, having interstate deregulatory treatment. But anyway, that's more of a footnote. Um, in any case, uh, so after uh, some bargaining and negotiating with the chairman, uh, we were able to get uh, video franchise relief uh, um, apply to uh, incumbents as well as new entrants. But we do have a long ways to go. You know, my hope is that those industries that, and, and it's, it's no uh, surprise that those industries that are more lightly regulated are, are doing much better than those that are heavily regulated. And uh, it's my hope that uh, those that are lightly regulated, we can keep it that way. And that can be a challenge sometime in this job. Spirit of, of other topics frequented uh, at these gatherings. Um, and this would be directed towards, I guess, Mr. McDowell and anyone else who would know something about the, this issue. Um, you know, telecommunications, uh, at least my understanding, you know, there, at this time there are a lot of limits on uh, what the other issues that come into play uh, uh, with other panels have been issues of freedom of uh, association and property rights and takings. Um, when it comes to FEC regulation, we have uh, a lot of, uh, the, the, at this time, I believe there are some pretty strict limits on devices that limit the reach of uh, cell phone signals and, and circuit uh, signal interrupters and things like that um, that could uh, create sort of quiet zones for cell communications and whatnot. Um, and I'm interested in, in if anyone uh, wants to knows about or comment about um, uh, any you know, moves afoot to sort of expand uh, personal rights in that area uh, without having to go to Italy or Israel to get a, a signal blocker or um, and how that might intersect with uh, another area like uh, takings where the right to exclude is uh, <laughs> interfered with uh, to the extent that the, the federal regulation doesn't permit uh, interference with uh, cell phone or cell signal uh, range. Looks like you're the target. Okay, I'm the target again. So I think your question focuses, uh, and, and if this is a trial, I'd object on a compound question. But anyway, your, the right to exclude uh, as, as an individual's right uh, versus uh, is that you're saying you don't want to hear, you want, you want to have a, uh, in your neighborhood or your club uh, the ability to not have cell phones function or wireless device, personal portable devices uh, function. Is that what you're saying? Yes, more or less. Okay. So it comes up in business environments, too, conferences or some Right. Well, in the, the, the laws that govern uh, wireless, um, you know, uh, some are based on the allocation of, of the scarce resources, Jim laid out in his uh, constructive uh, presentation. Others are, are, are based on uh, how to prevent interference. Um, and uh, so uh, generally speaking, and there's the, the, the tension between licensed, license, licensees have priority over un, uh, unlicensed devices, for instance. So in that, uh, your suggestion is going to play into all those sort of tensions uh, in the law that already exists. 
there, you know, there are certainly uh, perhaps some devices that are either uh, that are probably licensed. Uh, I don't think your uh, scenario would uh, uh, be tolerated probably for unlicensed devices as a matter of public policy. But uh, in, in that there might be devices that could work on a license basis or with special exceptions and special waivers at the commission, there might be that opportunity. Um, but if you want to talk about a more philosophical uh, discussion of the, of the right to exclude, the difficulty there is, especially with a licensee, if you're talking about a cell phone licensee who has the, the, the right to use that spectrum, um, that can pose a lot of technical uh, interference problems and, and the right that they have gained through uh, however they got the license uh, to operate their business. So uh, it's a swirling uh, whirlpool of grays, I think, is the bottom line. But I don't know if anyone else wants to chime in. Yes, the commissioner mentioned satellites before. Uh, multiple countries launched them. So what's the international regime for uh, coordinating where satellites are uh, and rationing, you know, who can use geosynchronous orbit? I mean, what's the basic framework? I assume I should, I'll take that one. Um, the international coordination for orbital uh, slots are done uh, by the International Telecommunications Union, which is a UN-affiliated agency based in Geneva, Switzerland. It's actually the oldest UN-affiliated agency in existence. So uh, the State Department, together with the FCC, uh, coordinates. So when a private company or when the government itself wants to launch uh, a satellite, there is uh, Paperwork, it's now mostly electronic, uh, that is uh, sent in. Uh, there is an analysis to see if there are uh, interference issues uh, with uh, other existing or proposed uh, satellites. Uh, as uh, the Commissioner indicated, there are issues about the spacing between satellites and the like. Uh, and then uh, after a review process that is coordinated by the ITU, then a, a uh, a right is given. That right can expire, however, if no launch takes place. In other words, you can't warehouse effectively. Uh, today, in fact, is the end of uh, the World Radio Communications Conference, which is where the world comes together and looks at these various issues. It happens every three or four years. It's a treaty writing exercise, uh, and our delegation of about 150 large uh, in Geneva has just finished their work uh, just a couple of hours ago. And uh, one of the issues there had to deal with uh, satellite spacing issues. And in particular, a number of countries sought waivers there to extend their time because they had concerns about getting satellites up there. Uh, there was one from the Andes, uh, one from uh, Vietnam and others, a couple of others. So you get extensions as well, but it's all done through the ITU. I just want to explore a little bit the relationship that we're talking about between deregulation leading to technological change, leading to greater access to information, and maybe to play devil's advocate for a second. I wonder whether that relationship will always hold, and I'm thinking specifically in terms of the net neutrality debate, whether it's possible that deregulation could lead to technological change, but could limit access to information while increasing consumer welfare, maybe in other ways, lowering prices or some other way or greater technological change that improves speed of access but not breadth of access. I wonder if anyone has any comments on that. 
unless you want to. No, no, I have not followed that debate okay. closely enough to uh, have an informed judgment. If you have uh, competing platforms, uh, if you have uh, a dearth of bottlenecks uh, in the uh, systems that deliver information, uh, the need for net neutrality uh, is negated. Uh, so it's a very simple concept. Um, the term net neutrality is what I like to call a Rorschach term. Uh, it's really <laughs> ill-defined. It's uh, whatever people uh, look into it. That's what they, they, they see in it. So um, what, I, what I think uh, that there's also uh, some confusion uh, in that Rorschach term as to uh, discriminatory conduct versus anti-competitive conduct. Uh, anyone who's run a telecom network can tell you that discrimination is known uh, by engineers as you know, operating or managing the network. You have to discriminate. Uh, video bits over the Internet to get priority over uh, email bits, for instance, to oversimplify somewhat. So is that anti-competitive? Well, we have laws in the books already that govern anti-competitive conduct. So uh, those would apply. So I, I think it's a bit of an academic uh, uh, discussion. There's a lot of fear that's surrounding it. You know, uh, the FCC put out a notice of inquiry last summer asking for evidence of market failure. In the context of that proceeding, nobody filed one drop of evidence regarding market failure. There is the, uh, the complaint that, that I haven't had a chance to read yet, but uh, regarding uh, Comcast and BitTorrent, um, and we'll take a look at that. And that's a pending adjudicatory matter, so I wouldn't comment even if I had read it. But um, in any case, uh, if that's an evidence of, of market failure, we can act the way the commission did in 2005 in the Madison River context where there was a, uh, a small phone company blocking uh, the ability of a competitive uh, voice over Internet protocol provider. Um, anyway, so uh, in a nutshell, that is how I view the net neutrality issue. There's a momentary lull. I'd like to ask a question of Roy Hoffman here. Well, maybe there isn't really a lull, but I'll seize it anyway. Uh, and that is, if I understood what you were saying correctly, uh, it was that standard-setting bodies uh, embarked on the process of imposing these brand, which essentially is price control, standards on the patent holders. So the standard setting didn't, I take it, uh, make the patent monopoly more of a monopoly uh, than, it, than it was by its own inherent nature. Uh, and, and then, if I understood it correctly, this seemed to morph into public utility type regulation or efforts to do that. I guess my question is, uh, that would be inevitable, would it not? And if it is inevitable, is, is your thought that one should abandon the, any effort at FRAND in the standard setting context, uh, or that there's some sort of middle way, FRAND that's not out of control, uh, but stays well short of public utility regulation. I think there is. You know, uh, only time will tell whether it's inevitable or not. I, I, I'm not prepared to accept that it is. The, uh, uh, I don't think it was intended when it was originally adopted to morph into uh, detailed price regulation. It really was about availability. And then you might ask yourself, well, what does fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory mean in this context? I think it means, in essence, it's almost like a, it's a constructive refusal to deal. That if your terms are so onerous, you preclude 
uh, efficient competitors from succeeding uh, downstream, then I think you have an issue. But short of that, I don't think it was intended to be the persuasive type of uh, wealth transfer, uh, that shifting uh, regulation that I think is, in essence, the epitome of public utility regulation. The middle ground, so to speak, is to uh, encourage to the maximum extent possible something that the FCC has been trying to do over the last seven years, which is to have rates, terms, and conditions established uh, to the maximum possible extent uh, through the competitive marketplace, through negotiations between patent owners and implementers. Uh, 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 if you create the idea of uh, uh, that uh, either party can simply resort to a court or an agency anytime they're dissatisfied with uh, terms that one or the other is offering, uh, that's going to be the death knell of negotiations. And face it, uh, in 20 years of these FRAN regimes, uh, actual disputes over licensing terms uh, for which uh, agency or judicial intervention has been required has been very, very minimal. So the fact is it works. Um, and the paramount thing to do, though, is to make sure that it's implemented in a manner uh, that creates the maximum possible incentive for working out terms in bilateral negotiations. Yes. I'd like to ask a very general question based on what I've been hearing, which seems very hopeful. Would you describe the industry as on a very strong trajectory towards free market reforms, deregulation, uh, limitation of rent-seeking, that sort of thing? Because that is what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Jim? Well, um, let me say... Um, I'm an old deregulator. I mean, you know, you know that. Um, and I think it's very important that uh, the barriers to competition that have been erected over a long period of time uh, in any industry should come down. Uh, but there is rent-seeking behavior that can take place even in competitive markets. And, uh, you know, lots of people have written about this. And it's, uh, and it's the... Uh, one of the responsibilities, I think, of regulators to always be on the lookout for rent-seeking behavior, even in markets where they are deregulating, uh, whether it is uh, seeking some special set of, uh, of rules and protocols and things, or whether it's uh, uh, combining resources. Um, those, I mean, you need to have your economist thinking hat on all the time to, you know, to, to try to achieve truly competitive marketplaces and efficient outcomes. Commissioner McDowell, uh, my question is in the broadcast realm. Um, actually, I've got two questions that are related. Um, first, uh, in recent years, the uh, well, for, first of all, as you know, uh, everyone here has been talking and extolling the merits of competition. Very friendly audience for that kind of message. But the FCC tends to talk more about localism and diversity than competition per se. And in its uh, ownership concentration rules, um, have gone to a model in recent years that recognizes, uh, presumably for their diversity's uh, contribution, uh, the, the merits of counting non-commercial stations towards ownership caps when you're, when you're counting the size of a market and how many stations can be owned by a commercial operator in a market. Now, I wonder if you might comment on the effect on competition where in many small markets 
the presence of some non-commercial stations, which are not competing for advertisers, for instance, can allow pretty close to monopoly uh, behavior on broadcasters, commercial broadcasters in that market. Um, secondly, uh, let's just assume uh, for the sake of argument that non-commercials are competing and, in and contributing to competition. The FCC just had a filing window uh, for no new non-commercial stations. Some 3,700 applications were received, so there's a lot of interest in building these stations. Uh, I wonder if you might comment on the fact that uh, projections are that those applications where they're mutually exclusive will take two to five years to process because largely the commission hasn't delegated authority to the staff. In most cases, these applications, we pretty much know who's going to win already. Excellent questions. Um, so first of all, regarding localism and diversity, uh, those discussions, uh, Congress has told us we have to in include uh, the public policy goals of having localism and, di and diversity in broadcasting. Uh, so when you hear us discuss that, it's because the directly elected representatives of the people have, have told us to discuss that and analyze that. Um, and that's certainly very important. I agree with those policy goals. Uh, I do think that new technologies uh, over the past you know, decade or two decades have uh, strengthened uh, localism and diversity uh, never before. You know, we hear complaints now about too much information. Uh, TMI is a, uh, is a, is a, you know, a, a text messaging acronym, uh, and that can apply to many different things, but part of that is we're, we're all saturated in a lot of data every day from multiple sources and from multiple platforms, uh, and I think all that has to be taken into, into account. Um, broadcasting is one of those platforms and, and one, of the, uh, one of the media from which we uh, derive a lot of our information. Um, in terms of uh, counting non-commercial stations or, or, or not, obviously, I'm not going to comment specifically on what we might do uh, going forward because we obviously have a, a, a very important proceeding ahead of us. But in terms of monopoly behavior, um, you know, under, under the, the rules as they are now, uh, you really can't own more than 17% of, of roughly of, of, of a market, depending on the tier of the market. Uh, so um, there, there is no monopoly in, in that regard. Uh, and also, how do, we, how do we judge the audio market if you're talking about radio? Uh, is the audio market also uh, satellite radio? Uh, we have a, uh, an issue there as well with the merger. Um, is it your iPod? Um, where does uh, the audio market uh, uh, begin? Where does it end? So all those have to be taken into account when, when uh, examining the, the competitiveness of a broadcast market, in my view. Um, and regarding the two to five years to uh, process uh, the applications from our newest uh, filing window, I certainly hope it wouldn't take that long. Um, uh, the chairman uh, should you know, initiate uh, delegating that authority uh, promptly, uh, and I would hope he would do so, uh, but that's within his purview right now. I just wanted to jump in on something I have actually written about, thought about and written just a little bit about. Um, whether the, uh, there's a broader entertainment, audio entertainment market is really an empirical question. Um, it sort of, uh, I think, goes against the grain for us to think that iPods and, and uh, CDs are perfect substitutes at the margin for for satellite broadcast. I'm a serious uh, S-I-R-I-U-S uh, mm -hmm. subscriber. And um, let me put that on the table. 
but I, I don't view them as, uh, as interchangeable at the margin, but it's, but it's an empirical question. And what I've seen so far is that there's little evidence that uh, the substitutability of, of alternatives would be sufficient to police what would be a merger of, of two down to one in this market with no real opportunity for entry. Entry is just extraordinary. Barriers are extraordinarily high there. Let me just take uh, a different tack, and one of the, you talk about both localism and diversity, which of course are two, two values shared very directly in both the United States, but in many other countries around the world. What other things I see going on on the diversity side is the extraordinary growth of things like internet radio, and now with things like YouTube and so forth, so that uh, those who have access to the internet, over 1.3 billion people around the world, now have access to virtually all the radio stations because most all of them now are broadcasting, uh, using that term loosely, on the Internet as well. And so uh, when I talk to my son, for example, who's in college, he listens to radio from a variety of places around the world. Even old people like me do, too, now. Uh, and the flip side is true, which is as you travel around the world, you see people with access to radio from the United States and from other countries, and access to video, whether it's YouTube or the like. So it, you're seeing a tremendous growth in diversity, quite apart from the challenges of the spectrum. Commissioner McDowell, we feel like we're piling on. Well, maybe no, <laughs> there's a lot going on in the commission, so I can understand you have a lot of questions. Away, as long as we can. <laughs> uh, one of the, we were talking about It's almost a little bit embarrassing to, to say, well, we're kind of focusing on deregulation when just, I think it was one or two weeks ago, the FCC came down with a new rule on MBUs, so the apartment buildings, multiple dwelling units, and basically applied this regulation that says, okay, if a cable company has an exclusive uh, MBU, they go ahead and wire it to the room, well, you have to open that up to the telcos. Um, that's fine, and that's good if we want to play a, a level comp, uh, uh, field. But the inverse wasn't applied, such that the telcos can now go in and sign these exclusive contracts to the exclusion of the cable operators. So once again, we talk about the deregulation and applying fairly. And, and Mr. Miller, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful too. But you know, just two weeks ago, there was another, you know, one of these crazy decisions that if you're a cable investor, you're going, my gosh, when's it going to stop? So again, you know, great lofty goals, but I'd love to see some action. <laughs> right. Well, the uh, the cable uh, with the cable industry, there, there's a, a lot of asymmetry. You're absolutely right. And uh, uh, in terms of we're deregulating other platforms uh, and, and holding up competition is, is the reason for that. Uh, but at the same time, for some reason, uh, not doing so with the, with the cable um, industry when they're facing the most competition they've ever faced before. So I, I share your concern uh, with that asymmetry. Absolutely. On the MDU item, as I understand it, the, there will be a uh, uh, an item coming out that will give regulatory parity to to all uh, providers on that, and uh, that was uh, something we all uh, all talked to the chairman about. That would be forthcoming. May I make a Perfect. comment about that? Uh, you know, my observation has been that uh, uh, when that to some extent, I, you know, I agree with the questioner that. Uh, Deregulation is often a lot of talk and not a lot of action, um, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a really a complicated issue, and I, I, I wouldn't want to paint 
uh, with two broad strokes. I, I think, though, most fundamentally is that even proponents of deregulation uh, still don't fully trust markets. And uh, I see an awful lot of regulation that is designed to, uh, you know, uh, not let marketplace activities uh, result in erosion of dominant market shares, but uh, to basically force the erosion of market shares through regulation. And I think the asymmetry that the questioner is pointing to um, is probably an example of that uh, distrust of markets that I think still continues to exist even among some proponents of deregulation. I'll just ask a question. You mentioned the mandate to pursue localism and diversity. Now, those often conflict in reality. Uh, has the Commission grappled with how to work out trade-offs between them and uh, and also explored uh, how far it can go when it sees that conflict? Uh, we have, and uh, your uh, colleagues in the Third Circuit uh, handed us our heads back on a platter. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, that was an interesting uh, journey before I got to the Commission uh, with the noblest of endeavors. Uh, it covers overturning... Uh, part of uh, what the Commission did in the Third Circuit, uh, overturning almost the rest of it, uh, except for the cross-ownership ban, which it said that the Commission did reasonably conclude that lifting of the ban was in the public interest. But uh, so we're trying to struggle with uh, how do we uh, have as much deregulation and go forward as possible, but still be upheld in court. I'm getting, I'm getting signals that uh, we should break up so all can rush to Rudy Giuliani, and uh, I want, want you all join me in thanking the panelists and our moderator. Yeah.